Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Tomorrow, uh, we uh, celebrate the feast of uh, St. John Henry Newman. Uh, this is a, a Catholic thinker and saint now that has been uh, was very influential in my reconsidering what the church was all about. Uh, he well, I'll tell you more about it as we go along. John uh, Saint John Paul II, uh, on the occasion of the second centenary of the birth of uh, Cardinal John Henry Newman, uh, said this. Newman was born in troubled times, which knew not only political and military upheaval, but also turbulence of soul. Old certitudes were shaken, and believers were faced with the threat of rationalism on the one hand and fideism on the other. Rationalism brought with it a rejection of both authority and transcendence, while fideism turned from the challenges of history and the tasks of this world to a distorted dependence upon authority and the supernatural. In such a world, Newman came eventually to a remarkable synthesis of faith and reason, which for him, like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of the truth, uh, quoting from his own uh, encyclical, Fides et Ratio, with me right now to lead us into a deeper understanding of St. John Henry Newman is Father Juan Velez. He is the author of several books on Newman, including a biography, A Passion for Truth, The Life of John Henry Newman, a wonderful book uh, taking a look at Newman's understanding of holiness and its appeal to not just Catholic intellectuals, but to all men and women. It's called Holiness in a Secular Age, The Witness of Cardinal Newman. And uh, Father Velez is uh, also right now uh, working on a book which will introduce children to uh, John Henry Newman called uh, Brave Leader, Big Heart. Uh, He's a priest of Opus Dei and a former physician uh, working in Miami. And you can learn more about his work by going to CardinalJohnHenryNewman.com. Father, good to have you with me. Thanks. Hello, Al. Thank you. I'm glad to be on on your show and what you just said about uh, the quote from St. John Paul II is fantastic. I'm is, glad to hear that. Yeah, I, I thought it was too when I read it. Um, I'm just curious, how did you get interested in uh, John Henry Newman in the first place? Yes, when I started, uh, after studying some years of theology, I was thinking of what I would do to study for a master's and a doctorate. And I read a good biography of Newman by uh, Professor Jose Morales in Spain. And, mm-hmm. And then I just uh, got very drawn by his uh, his uh, courage, his um, uh, determination to look after, to seek the truth, uh, and uh, and and so I started studying studying Saint John Henry Newman. Then he was Cardinal Newman only. Yeah, and then so he, that was in the that was in the in the nineties. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, but he was very drawn by by his uh, his writings, his but also his example, his example, his own personal life. He's, he's a, again, a remarkable figure in as much as he really does. Uh, he's a great thinker, um, but he's also a great communicator, and he's a great writer uh, on the spiritual life. Uh, let's talk a little bit about his uh, upbringing and his background. Uh, he was born into a, a Christian home, I assume. Right. Yes, yes. He was born in, in London in 1801, and... Uh, his uh, his family was uh, his family was uh, 
uh, well, his mother's background was Calvinist from France. Um, his father was Anglican. Um, so it was a, so it was an Anglican um, uh, home, or we could say low Anglican. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, they didn't pay much attention to the liturgical aspects of the faith. Or, right. Uh, but but they were very much biblical, uh, rooted in biblical Christianity. Uh, he he was the oldest of a family with three sons and three daughters, um, and uh, he he went to a grade school, uh, a boarding school, in Ealing, just outside of London back then, and then went to Oxford at a young age. Um, so he studied at Oxford uh, at as a Trinity College, and then. And then went on to Oriel College, where he became a a tutor, okay. like like an associate professor. Uh, gr- growing up in a uh, an evangelical Anglican home, did he have a? Uh, I mean, that tends to be conversionistic uh, aspect you know, of the faith. Did, did he have a clear moment of evangelical style conversion? Uh, no, not not really, and. And although his his family was what's called low Anglican, but they weren't they weren't evangelical. They were okay. I mean, uh, his, first of all, his mother was a his mother and his grandmother uh, on his father's side were uh, strong biblical Christians, but but they um, and they went to church. Uh, but but his his conversion, his first conversion of a series of conversions in his life was uh, while being in the boarding school. At about the age of fifteen, and he had a he he had a sense that uh, a real sense that uh, of of the existence of God, and that it was not just something uh, something notional, something in the mind, but mm-hmm. but of a real God, and and that if there were two people in the world, it was God and him. <laughs> right. uh, that, so that it was very he could be sure of that that he he was alive. He would be sure of that, mm-hmm. and and that, but also could be sure that God existed, and uh, it, it was. Like beginning to take seriously what what he had heard about and read about, but now it, it, he started taking seriously his faith, and it was but it was a personal encounter, so to speak, with yes. God. But but not but different from from a one time conversion, let's say, uh, yeah, going to a, a retreat or a revival or something yeah, like okay. that. Yeah, okay. So it wasn't a revivalistic type uh, conversion, right. but it was a definite encounter uh, with the yes. living God. Okay. You yes, mentioned that yes. was the first of his conversions. Uh, did he have many? Well, the at, at least a few. Some people talk about his whole life is in uh, sort of conversion, so mm-hmm. to speak. But uh, he he had another one when he was, uh, years later, after being a tutor at, at Oriel College and trying to reform the, the teaching style of the college, uh, he... Uh, he went with a friend, Harold Frude, for a Mediterranean trip in 1832-33, uh, beginning uh, for a few months, and uh, and there uh, in Sicily, uh, well, well, he visited different churches and uh, and, uh, and and countries. But in Sicily, he fell sick. And he was very sick, maybe with typhoid fever. It was close to dying, and he he had a sense then that it was it, that. Well, God wants something from my life. Something has a purpose for my life. Mm-hmm. So it was a conversion in the sense of uh, God has a purpose for my life. Before that, he had been at Oxford, and, and he sensed that he, he saw many problems in the Anglican Church of his time, 
and and he and he already with some friends was concerned about that but then in in being close to death he says well there's a purpose for my life i will not die he said god god has a plan for me and so that was a, a conversion in the sense of a mission for his okay. life gotcha okay and that was very strong uh, he, it was it was a distinct he 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 uh, had uh, and he actually believed that god had a mission uh, in a sense, for all of us, that he we all been called to some particular thing, is that right? Yes, he has that that beautiful um, that beautiful prayer, uh, which uh, which uh, it's you, you, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with it. But it says, "God has created me to do Him some definite service. Mm-hmm. He has committed some work to me which He has not committed to another." But he was this is a prayer that he understood others could read, also others could make their own. I have my mission. I never may know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. Somehow I am necessary for his purposes. And it continues. That's from Meditations of John Henry Newman. Uh, and uh, it's just very beautiful. He, had, he, he realized that we all have a mission from God. We all have a calling uh, mm-hmm. in, in life. Yeah. Uh, when, he, when he, after that second conversion during his illness, uh, was he in any way being attracted to uh, Rome? No, I'm glad. No, I'm glad you pointed that out. No, so he, no, he was very much uh, an Anglican, and uh, he he uh, he had read Anglican some Anglican theologians or divines of the 17th century, and he had uh, he knew of some other good people, like when he was in grade school uh, in the boarding school of a, a, an Anglican. Uh, well, a, a, a Anglican preacher there. Uh, he knew he had a good examples of of good people in the Anglican Church, and he. But but no, his idea was of how do we revive the faith in the Anglican Church? How do we strengthen the obedience to the bishop? How do we um, how do we uh, uh, make sure that the government is not what the one that that is in charge of the church. Yeah. The church is not to be under the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, so how do we return to the, uh, the, uh, the teachings of, of holiness of the church fathers? Yeah. So it was a revival. He wanted to revive, uh, to strengthen and revive the, the, the Anglican church. When does he uh, get involved in what comes to be called the Oxford Movement? So it's precisely that. So he, he returns from Sicily after this illness. He recovers, and that's when, on the trip, on the on the on a boat, on a ship, he writes that famous poem, poem "Lead Kindly Light, yes, Lead Thou true. Me On," referring to a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I do not know the way. One step's enough for me. And and it's a so it's a very beautiful poem. And he's praying to God. And when he arrives in in England, first to France and then travels to England. He arrives, and about and about a week later, with some friends, another John Keeble, who had had taught at Oxford, he, he no longer taught there. Uh, Harold Froude, William Rose, and a few other people, they they met together and they decided, well, we have to do something. Uh, at that moment, it wasn't called the Oxford Movement, but that's that was the beginning of the Oxford Movement, mm-hmm. and they decided to to start writing, um, especially Newman, pamphlets. Pamphlets, uh, which they called tracts, uh, calling calling the clergy first of all to to uh, 
to holiness and to respect for the liturgy and respect for the authority of the bishops, respect for doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that he he was not. Uh, well, we'll come back to this uh, on the other side of the break. But I I wanted to uh, make sure we'll, we'll talk a little about his his work within the Oxford movement. Uh, eventually, the tract that was so controversial. Uh, but I also want right. to make sure we talk about his. Uh, a lot of times, he's people talk about him as though he was a theological liberal, and that certainly is not the case. He had a very high view of divine revelation. <laughs> so sure, not at all. Well, sure he was there. open to what's called development. Right. We'll talk about that, but yeah, uh, a well-ordered development. Father Holyfield, there. We've got to take a break. We'll come back and continue the conversation. Uh, my guest is uh, Father Juan Velez. He is the author of Passion for Truth, The Life of John Henry Newman. Also, Holiness in a Secular Age, The Witness of Cardinal Newman. We're going to continue tomorrow, of course, the celebration uh, of his uh, feast day. And uh, we'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Juan Velez. He is the author of Passion for Truth, The Life of John Henry Newman, and also Holiness in a Secular Age, The Witness of Cardinal Newman, and soon um, uh, a children's book uh, that will be out introducing uh, young men and women to uh, John Henry Newman. Uh, We were talking before the break about uh, these conversions that uh, occur in the life of John Henry Newman. One of them uh, is the, he has an encounter with the living God. He becomes as confident of God's existence uh, as he is of his own existence. Uh, God was not just the conclusion to a, uh, you know, a set of uh, correct uh, premises. Uh, God was a person to be encountered. Second conversion he has after a serious illness where he has a sense, a conversion to mission, where he knows he's been called to do some particular thing. And uh, when he gets back to England, uh, he begins meeting with friends uh, in, a, in a group that becomes known eventually as the Oxford Movement. And you were saying, uh, Father, that this, this movement, especially Newman, wrote these uh, a series of tracts or pamphlets um, and they were urging, right. first of all, clergy uh, to take the faith and its doctrines more seriously. I, I guess there's one thing, when I first got interested in, in uh, John Henry Newman, I wasn't a Catholic, and um, and I was, there were some people who said that he was, you know, he was a, liberal theology has its roots in John Henry Newman. And of course, it wasn't too. I didn't do too much reading before I realized that's simply not true. Uh, liberal theology generally rejects a clear idea of divine revelation, or or reinterprets divine revelation as re- religious experience. So, theology turns into anthropology. That didn't happen with Newman. Newman always had a high no, view. Yeah, tell me a little bit about his view of divine revelation. Sure. So, right. He. Uh, in the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which is his biography, as you know, mm-hmm. he, um, his intellectual biography, spiritual biography, he, he says that he had a number of principles that he clearly saw from early on. One was the sacramental principle that the world that we see speaks to us of a higher world. It's a reflection of a higher world, and, 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 and that God is acting in the world, but what we see is a reflection. In the, uh, but 
but another of the principles was the principle of of the uh, of, of doctrine, and that that religion is based on doctrines that God reveals and that are foundational, and uh, we we can't uh, we, we can know them. God reveals them to us, but we we don't make them up. Right. Uh, he uh, he he will later explain how these doctrines can, uh, the explanation of these doctrines, we can reach a deeper understanding of them. We can reach corollaries. We can reach conclusions Mm -hmm. from those doctrines that that God reveals through the prophets and then especially through Jesus Christ. But we, but, but they are developments and they have to be, they have to be in a, uh, in keeping with the earlier doctrine, they can't contradict the earlier doctrine. Right. And and the way he said it beautifully in a book that he wrote, which was the book that that uh, that he wrote right before becoming Roman Catholic, which would be his next conversion, uh, the development of the Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. That book in which he wrote for a few years, uh, uh, over a few years, and he thought about over a number of years. Uh, that book he, he talks about how. A, a child develops and from a child and becomes an adult, so he changes, but the adult is the same child, is the same identical child, but developed. Mm-hmm. Or an acorn grows and it becomes a tree, but that tree comes from that acorn. And uh, maybe an even better example that he used, and, and by the way, he was he was referring to a, a uh, St. Vincent of Lerain, uh, a, a French monk who had addressed this, Although Newman later addressed it more and added a number of, uh, of, of safeguards and explanations, and so Newman, one of the the, the other comparison that he used, which is really good, he says, a river begins as a stream and it's pure and stream, but the river widens and deepens and becomes fuller, and and so he was saying, well, doctrine, there's development of doctrine, but uh, but then but then after that. He, he goes on to say that there are different safeguards to, to know when it's authentic development or when it's a corruption, something that goes off. Now, he, he was precisely, as an Anglican and, at Oxford, he was thinking that the papacy was a, was a mistake, was a corruption mm-hmm. of, 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 of Christian doctrine. He was thinking that uh, the doctrine of purgatory, that was a corruption. Uh, he thought that the... The devotion to Mary, excessive devotion to Mary, although he believed he had devotion to Mary, but excessive, he thought there was something called excessive, and he said that that was a corruption. Uh, so he was grappling with wh- whether these are true developments or whether they are corruptions, and he, he grappled with that and thought about that, and 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 then when as, as he writes this book, he he um, he comes to the conclusion no, that they're true developments of Christian doctrine. Yeah. Uh, how long after he begins with the Oxford movement uh, does he uh, end up having a, a crisis with the uh, church establishment uh, and then eventually finds his way to Rome? How, how long is that period? Right. So he begins, 1833 begins the, the Oxford movement, and he's okay. the leader and the founder. Okay. Uh, 1833, and 1845... So in 12 years, he becomes Catholic, 1845. Uh, and, and the last five years, I would say, from 1840 to 1845, or 1839 to 1845, he, he says he's on his deathbed. 
he's he because he sees the writing on the wall. Okay. And um, and uh, I, I should go back and maybe if you if you ask me if you want to how. Uh, about this idea that he's a liberal. We, we can talk about that in a moment again. <laughs> sure, sure. So basically, from, from 1833 to 1845, he's the leader of the Oxford movement. Then a friend of his continues, Edward Pusey, who, who taught Hebrew at Oxford and a good man, an Anglican, who remained an Anglican. He continues with the, the well, with the Oxford movement, which becomes Anglo-Catholicism. Uh, so basically, it's a 12-year it's a, it's period. In the last six or so years, he is uh, he's trying to remain Anglican, but he sees that he had held on to the fact that the Anglicans uh, had an ancient tradition, ancient doctrines that they and, and he thought they were apostolic. But he begins to realize that they're not Catholic hmm. because they're uh, the idea of Catholic is what has been accepted by Christians throughout the world and believed as 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 the authentic teaching of Jesus Christ. He begins to see that the Anglicans are just relegated to certain parts. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and then he begins to see whether, he begins to examine doctrines to see whether they are true, true developments. And, and the, one of, the, one of the, the notes or tests whether a doctrine is true development is if it has, as it's, if it follows or continues, has continuity with the doctrine taught by Jesus or his successors, mm -hmm. if there's continuity. Um, and, uh, and, and so he, he, uh, very much, uh, with a number of other tests that he had, he was very much of the mind, as I was saying, that doctrine can develop, but it has to be in continuity. And so he was very, uh, much looking for orthodoxy, looking for what was revealed in scripture or in tradition. And basically all his life, he was seeking the truth about Revelation, the truth yeah. about the tradition transmitted, and only, only really after his life, uh, after his death, do people uh, begin to call him uh, a liberal or try to engage him in. Uh, and, and there is a reason for that, but it happens really after his death that people start <laughs> thinking that he is somehow a liberal. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> so they wouldn't call him that during his lifetime to his face, I guess. No. <laughs> right? No, no. Of course, of course not. What, what he was is he was aware that that things can develop. Right. So, but if you, if, but that doesn't mean that you're that you're a liberal in theology. It means that you that there's an ordered development. That um, that one of the uh, that one of the one of the ideas is that that besides continuity, that it is already that it's already implied in earlier doctrine. So, for example, the doctrine of the practice of confession. Well, that's already present in Christ forgiving sins, and, and so that comes from that. Or, or for example, the, the indulgences mm -hmm. or purgatory, that follows from an earlier teaching about forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a continuity, and, but it's predicted also. It's, it's already implicit in the earlier doctrine. Right, right. Uh, what is the crisis? Uh, when, what is it, Track 95 that becomes the the critical point for him in his relationship to the You're, Anglican establishment? Track, track, nine, track 90. Track 90, track 90. okay. We, and that was the last one because, yeah, that one where he was trying to explain that the, the, the first uh, Anglicans, uh, well, uh, many of them maintained the Catholic beliefs and doctrines, 
And so when they wrote what was called the 39 articles that they have that that Anglicans were supposed to believe, uh, well, some some wanted Protestant principles, but other Anglicans wanted to maintain the Catholic principles. So the 39 articles that they wrote, uh, they could be interpreted from a Catholic point of view. And so he was, as an Anglican, uh, saying that uh, a few centuries later, three centuries later, but as soon as he said that, uh, people didn't. People objected. Um, people objected, and uh, and then one bishop after another, Anglican bishop, began to censure his tract. Yeah, and he was obedient to his bishop, so he 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 stopped he stopped uh, writing tracts. Mm-hmm. And but he continued to think about this and to pray about this and to study to study church history uh, to to see what uh, what he should do. Uh, what pushed when, him? And, 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 sorry, go ahead. I was just saying. Well, what finally pushed him uh, to Rome? Was there a moment where right. he realized, well, "Oh, I'm a Catholic"? <laughs> so, so the, there were there were there were a number of things, um, but one, one of them was something called the Gorham case, uh, where a a um, a, a priest. Um, a priest began to preach something that was doctrinally incorrect, and his bishop, his bishop uh, censured the priest. But then the, the the priest appealed to the government, and some higher court in the government uh, said, "No, the, the the priest can do that." So basically, the, the the bishop's authority was undermined by the government. Wow! And, and together with that, there were a few other. A few other cases, like one was that a, a joint Anglican Lutheran bishop was named for for Jerusalem. So he said, "How, how can this be? Yeah, this is not possible." Uh, hold it there, Father. We'll take a break. We'll come back, continue the conversation, looking at the witness of Saint John Henry Newman. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me. Uh, we are looking at the life and teachings of St. John Henry Newman. My guest, Father Juan Velez, is the author of uh, an outstanding biography of uh, Newman, Passion for Truth. He also has uh, a volume called Holiness in a Secular Age, The Witness of Cardinal Newman. And uh, he has already, I said I think he was working on, but in fact he's finished, and it's now in publication, a book for children, uh, introducing them to John Henry Newman. It's available now. It's called uh, Brave Leader, Big Heart. And uh, we're talking again about his uh, conversion, uh, realizing, first of all, the existence of God, an encounter with the living God, then uh, a conversion to a clear sense of mission. And now we're at the point where he is finally ready to cross the Tiber, as they say, and uh, he was concerned, uh, Father. Um, he was concerned that the state was exercising uh, undue influence over uh, what were supposed to be the church's jurisdictions. Is that right? Right. And uh, so, so the and and that basically and well and the that the and also that the bishops were not upholding. The, uh, some bishops were not upholding the doctrine uh, uh, transmitted by the 
by tradition mm-hmm. and in revelation. Yeah. Um, and, and and then and then track ninety was the other thing that to see that that see that uh, in in a way that uh, these the, the bishops and other people were rejecting an understanding of of doctrine that 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 was there uh, to see, there in the in the, in the teachings of the of uh, of the church in the, the teachings of of the saints so that 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 also led him to. Um, to reconsider his position uh, and and then to spend some more years uh, in prayer and study. But I did want to say, and, and before you know, we forget that he was a person and, and that that would read scripture and study scripture. So, so those who are listening, these are a reminder to us of the importance of daily reading of the scriptures yeah. and, and meditation of the scriptures, and and also and also the the church fathers, Saint Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, uh, Saint Polycarp, uh, certainly Saint Augustine. Uh, so we we have to we have to read uh, and we, uh, to st- the scriptures, and we have to read the church fathers. Yes, to 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 have a solid faith. Uh, in fact, in your book Holiness in a Secular Age, the witness of Cardinal Newman, you have an entire chapter on the study of the scriptures, meditation, uh, Newman on biblical inspiration, uh, and let, let's uh, let's in fact pivot a little bit here. Uh, after he becomes a Catholic, uh, and he uh, begins to uh, exercise pastoral responsibilities, uh, he doesn't immediately. Um, one, one would have thought they he'd be placed immediately in some uh, university position, but uh, where does he actually function pastorally uh, as a Catholic priest? That, that, that's very interesting, <laughs> and I really haven't. I mean, I've thought about it, but not not enough because you're like you're, you're right. It doesn't doesn't seem to be the place. Well, he he becomes part of the Oratory of Saint Philip Mary, and uh, Pope Pius IX sends him to England to start the Oratory of Saint Philip Mary, which existed in Italy. Uh, and he he goes, but but he goes to a Birmingham, a a industrial city, and. Uh, and he works with the, uh, poor Irish immigrants right, yeah. uh, in a parish. Yeah. So they start a parish, and so it's it's really not the the place you would expect. He he was an up and rising star at Oxford, uh, and and he had already written a number of books. and And he goes there to work in a parish, and he would hear confessions, and you would teach uh, the kids catechism, catechism mm-hmm. and uh, give the, administer the sacraments to the people, to those who were sick. Uh, so, so he did that for a number of years, and then, uh, and then, uh, and then he continued to to do other things. And then later, later in eighteen fifty, uh, in uh, eighteen um, eighteen fifty two, I think he goes to or eighteen fifty, uh, eighteen fifty one, fifty two. He prepares to go to Ireland, and he starts the Catholic University right. of Ireland. Yeah, yeah. So then he does he does come into his. What is his gift? His special gift uh, of uh, of, uh, of education, and there he writes uh, in the year 1850-51. He writes these lectures, uh, which he delivered in in Dublin, that later become the famous idea of a university, yeah, yeah. which are all about the importance of university education and the, the right concept of education. Yeah. Uh, did he ever complain about uh, his time in Birmingham? That his gifts weren't being used to their fullest, or something like that. Well, he he had disappointments in his life, uh, 
but not 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 of being in Birmingham. Uh, various disappointments. One was that he, when he went to Dublin, uh, he um, he he had this uh, he did this great work starting the university, but but he was he was hampered because uh, his ideas of giving importance to the laity and running the university and his ideas of uh, at the of, of of making the university something different than a, than like a seminary mm-hmm. weren't well received, and so he had disappointments. Or when he was in Birmingham, he he uh, he was asked by the English bishops to do a translation of the Bible, and uh, a new translation into English. But then, out of the jealousy of some other people, uh, that was uh, that came to an end. So he had that disappointment. He had disappointments by by sometimes being looked. Uh, by older Catholics, uh, we called old Catholics, families that remained Catholics during the, the persecution, they looked at him with a little bit of of, uh, of suspicion, mm. and, and him and other converts. Yeah, uh, and and so he had that disappointment. But no, he didn't complain of being in a in an industrial city and then um, and then being being there. Uh, it, it's it, that's pretty remarkable. He uh, he he just met would meet with people, would write. Did a little bit of traveling, but not a lot, and basically uh, lived as a good, a good holy priest mm-hmm. and, a, and a writer and teacher. He, he, um, I mean, he's a great letter writer too, and I know there's a huge volume of his letters. Uh, you have a chapter on friendship uh, in the book "Holiness in a Secular Age." Uh, friendship very important to him. Well, it's 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 heartwarming, and you learn from his friendships. One is one is that he, um, you, you see that uh, that friendship takes time to develop, and so throughout the years he develops friendships with people through through letter writing, sometimes short visits, but those uh, he continues that, and now that today that letter writing has been lost a great right. deal. Yeah, uh, he, he gives us that. So he maintained friendships. And he he uh, he had a spirit of service where he friendship grew through common interests and service. So he would help people with correcting their, their writings, uh, answering questions for them, helping them to publish. Sometimes he would help people find a job, uh, and uh, and then and then what was common to his friendships uh, is the, uh, their, his his love for God, his wanting to. To, to serve God and serve the church. So th- those were, so the, that was, uh, that was the common thread. Um, and, and then in, and in his friendships, you see a lot of good humor and in his letters, you see, uh, you see that the man, the, the, the real man, hmm. so to speak, in the sense of he's, he's, he's very candid, he's frank, he's humorous. And, and it's very, just very, very beautiful to see a saint speaking uh, with that human warmth and and, and, and simplicity. <laughs> so he it, it, so he yeah. was not especially withdrawn or timid. Uh he he was he was uh, reserved but he wasn't timid. Mm-hmm. He, he was and, and people think of him as timid. He he was a uh, he had so many friends, so yeah. many friends and uh and he he uh the, the he was a happy person with with a, with a great sense of humor. Uh, but 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 unfortunately, people who don't know him say, well, that he was that he was shy, that he was um, well. There's a difference between being shy and reserved. And um, he uh, 
Now, he could spend time reading. He would love to be in a library or reading in a study, but he would go out and do things with people. With his friends, when he was in college, he would do horseback riding, or they would go for long walks mm-hmm. regularly. And then when he was an associate professor, a tutor, he would go with his students for long walks. And they were, they were friendly conversation and also talking about big ideas and talking about important issues. And that's how friendship, that's one way he lived, uh, practiced friendship. Uh, what was the greatest disappointment of his life, do you think? Oh, my goodness. That's, um, <laughs> that, um, uh, well, I, the, the, uh, I, I think, I think it, it could be that he, he, uh, although in, in the, in the fifties and sixties, he noticed, uh, the, the, uh, the way that Catholics, uh, were treated in England and, uh, and, and the, the lack of understanding, and, and, and also there were riots in England against Catholics. So that was something that certainly was hard. Um, but I think the one disappointment, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I have, it's hard to say it this way, but, but being misunderstood at times yeah. by Rome, yeah. by, by the Holy See, uh, although eventually uh, Pope Leo IX named him Cardinal. Right. He saw right. the greatness of this, this uh, and the holiness of this man and named him Cardinal. When he was um, when he was seventy seven, so uh, in eighteen seventy eight, uh, but but it was not being misun- being misunderstood and uh, and and being and and uh, actually and I, I I said earlier that he was seen as a liberal later on. Well, in his life also, a few people did call him liberal to the Holy See, and and they created that animosity they, yeah. on the part of some people in the Holy See. Mm-hmm. So being misunderstood, I think that. That, that hurt him, um, and in fact, he was invited to go to Vatican I by a few bishops, but he declined, and also by the Pope, hmm. he declined, because he felt that he felt that he had already been uh, to uh, been thought of it in a way with some suspicion, and he felt he felt somewhat hemmed in and decided not to go to Vatican I as an expert. Yeah, that's no, interesting. Uh, yeah, he, he was certainly no liberal. He wasn't a reactionary, though, either, was he? I mean, he wasn't an ultra-traditionalist. Right. No, that was... Well, so he had to... Right. He had to, he had to, to fight that tendency of some Catholics in England to, to think that you had to revive uh, the actual practices and modes of the past or of Rome. He thought, well, we're in England, so we have English customs, mm-hmm. and we don't have to use Italian customs. And, and also that we don't have, we don't need the Pope to be telling us every week, um, you know, or every month what to do. Right. Uh, in right. fact, he, he, he laughed about one of his friends, Ward, who said he would like a papal bull served to him at breakfast every morning. <laughs> so, no, no, we, you know, and so he was, he didn't want that, that sense of, uh, there, there should be freedom to think, to write. If you make a mistake, well, then, you know, you, it has to be clarified, but there has to be a sense of, of respect and freedom for others, mm-hmm. and that there is room for a healthy, good development. But he thought that the bishop should the bishops should be the, the the arbiters of that development, and ultimately the Holy See, the arbiters of whether a development is is, is good and authentic or or it's a mistake. Yeah. Well, Father, let me thank you for taking the time to be with me today. I greatly appreciate your work, and uh, I hope we can talk again in the future, okay? 
Thank you, Al. It's been great. Thank you very much, and happy feast day ahead of ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, we're a little ahead of the curve here. But uh, again, the feast of St. John Henry Newman coming up tomorrow. Father Juan Velez, my guest. Again, his biography I recommend to you, Passion for Truth, also Holiness in a Secular Age.